This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So thank you, everyone, and welcome to the latest installment of the Future Thought Leaders panels uh, by the Berry Good Food Foundation. So let's quickly introduce my panelists. So at my far right, the amazing Dolores Huerta, who is the president of the Dolores Huerta Foundation. Cesar Chavez for the United Farm Workers uh, and has received multiple medals uh, from various presidents along the way and she's also singularly responsible for the phrase si se puede which uh, as you all know Barack Obama uh, co-opted and used in his first presidential campaign so thanks for joining us Dolores always a pleasure Uh, we next have Fernando Sanudo who's right here in Vista he's the CEO of Vista Community Clinic Uh, He's the 2014 Latino Champion Award Health Professional of the Year with a Master's in Public Health. Thank you so much, Fernando. Next, we have Jillian Barber, who's the Program Manager of Community Benefits and Health uh, Improvement at SHARP. Uh, She's the co-chair of the Advisory Committee, Community Health Needs Assessment with a Master's also in Public Health. So thank you for coming, Jillian. On my right is Paul Watson. He's the president and CEO of Global Action Research Center. He's a guest lecturer at UCSD in the Urban Studies and Planning Program. He's a Master's of Science, excuse me, of Science and Health Sciences from Springfield. So thanks for joining us. We're looking forward to it. On my left is Darren, otherwise known as Farmer D. Joffe. He is the founding director of Coastal Roots Farm. He's the director of agricultural innovation and development at the Leech Tag Foundation and also an author, Citizen Farmers, The Biodynamic Way to Grow Healthy Food. Thanks for coming. And last but not least, at least for the moment, is Rose Hayden-Smith. She's a historian and editor of the UC Food Observer, which I suggest you all follow. She's the author of Sowing the Seeds of Victory, and uh, she's uh, the Bradford and Rominger Award uh, recipient in Agricultural Sustainability Leadership for 2013. Uh, Thank you for joining us, Rose. Our final panelist today will be Dave Murphy, but he will be arriving late. We're going to start the conversation, and he'll join us at the end. What we're going to do today is we want to talk about food justice. and uh, We always have these single-issue conversations, but obviously food justice is anything but a single issue. We're going to talk a little bit about what food justice means. We're going to ask some of our panelists to tell us what it means to them. We're going to talk about sort of the fundamental underpinnings, disparity, poverty, uh, food insecurity. Then we're going to talk about the health risks. We have some healthcare providers here, the health risks that relate to food insecurity generally and more specifically among farm workers who not only have the same dynamic, but in addition, as we all know, are subjected to additional toxins and so forth. And then we're going to end, hopefully, on a high note. We're going to talk about solutions. Uh, We'll talk about public policy, sort of larger national and statewide regional fixes, and also community action. So, and we have some community activists here. Uh, So we'll have, hopefully, quite a diverse conversation for you. And again, any time during the conversation, if you want to tweet in a question, the hashtag is foodjustice421. I want to thank also our virtual audience out there. I believe we're 
being uh, Facebook Lived on both the Berry Good Food Foundation Facebook page as well as Curator. So all of you folks out there, you can tweet in questions as well. So let's get right to it. Let's talk a little bit about food justice. Who'd like to take a stab at defining for me what food justice means to them? Oh, am I going to have to call on someone? <laughs> well, I could start. Please. Um, in my organization, when we think about food justice, we're really, really seeking to ensure that the benefits and the risks of, of where, what, and how food is grown, how it's produced, how it's transported, how it's distributed, how it's accessed, uh, and also eaten, that it's, fair, it's shared fairly. So it's a real simple piece for us. It's, and by doing that, then the work that we do around civic engagement is really getting residents involved in determining what that fairly means and what it looks like. And how far are we from that goal? There's a lot of work that we still have to do. <laughs> Uh, so basically, I, I think of it fundamentally as the right to grow what you want to grow, sell to whom, uh, what you want to sell, and to which market you'd like to sell it, and to eat, have access to healthy food. It sounds very simple, but in fact, it's anything but. Anybody else want to chime in just in general on the sort of fundamentals of food justice? Sure. sure. I, uh, I believe that food is a right. Um, and I think that the United Nations, uh, the special you know, food provocateur, Halal Elver, has come out very strongly about that. I believe it's a right. I believe that um, people have a right to food that is culturally appropriate, that is grown sustainably, and people all along the food chain, I believe, have a, have a right to be compensated fairly for it. I think we live in the most abundant food nation that the world has ever seen. And, uh, and we need to find a way to fix this. Now, in the, in the current era, it seems that we deal a lot with food insecurity issues as a matter of charity for nonprofits and other sorts of activities. But is this really appropriate? Should this be a matter of charity or should it be a matter of policy or justice? Anybody want to jump in there? Please. I, I think we have a lot of policies um, that we have to change. I think there's many, many levels of food injustice that we have to correct. Number one, uh, just the, and, I, and I'm speaking now from my experience as being a negotiator when I was with United Farm Workers, is that so many of the employers that, that I dealt with, they would talk about the planting, the harvesting of food, what kind of a deal we can make. So it's about profits. It's not about feeding people. So I think that the whole uh, way that we look at food and distribution of food, we have to look at that very differently. And so food needs to be looked at as nutrition and as a sacred a product uh, that everybody should have. And that it should, we shouldn't think of food as just being a, a product for profit. Uh, the other thing is uh, when we think of food, but we also, also should think of, of our food as healthy food. And when we see that we in the United States of America, we have the highest cancer rate in the world, and we know that a lot of this cancer rate, that we, the cancer that people are, are you know, having to suffer from, is coming from the, the poisons and the chemicals on our food and the way that we grow our food. And I think that these are like very significant uh, damages that are being done uh, to our children, to, you know, to people's health. And that, uh, that we really have to think of what policies can we enact to make sure that our food is safe. Uh, I personally believe that all chemicals that are used on food, the poison, economic poisons, this is what pesticides are called economic poisons, the fungicides, everything else, that 
uh, we, that should be governed, and I know probably not under this administration because they're already, you know, taking some of the pesticides that have been banned and bringing them back. But eventually, we should really look towards having all chemicals, any additives on food should go through Health and Human Services. Take them out of the EPA, you know, take them out of the Department of Agriculture, and we have to just have a whole new concept about our food needs to be safe and it needs to be healthy, as, of course, the people that actually, you know, produce the products. And I don't know if everyone in the audience knows this, but one of the many things that you've done in your life when in, in your work with the farm workers was your organization and that movement was responsible for getting rid of DDT, which was at that time one of the really horrific uh, pesticides used that created a lot of health risks. And... Um, you know, I, we need to see that sort of movement again because we certainly, we may have gotten rid of one, but we, we haven't cleared the field of the toxins. Yet. Actually, there were, there were many uh, pesticides, we call them the dirty dozen, uh, that we were able to get banned. Uh, but unfortunately, many of the uh, pesticides that we got banned here in the United States, they shipped them over to Mexico or Central America. And then, of course, we get a lot of our food that is imported from these countries. So the pesticides that we ban here are actually being used over there. The deformities and the cancers that uh, you know we were seeing here are now happening over there. So it's all got, also, I think we have to look at food as a worldwide uh, concept, not not because in, in the United States we probably have the capacity to feed so many other uh, nations, you know. And then the other thing is that you know we are trying to impose our agricultural systems on other countries. You know, which maybe the, those our, our systems do not fit in. You know, this this mass production of food that we have here in the United States. For instance, where I live, we're in the grape jungle. You know, we uh, ship, I guess, over almost close to eighty percent of all of the grapes in the United States come from the Central Valley of California. And uh, so, you know, we're thinking of these mass production of food, which maybe again might make it cheaper. But uh, is it healthier? I mean, I think that's what we have to look well, at. Well, and that gets to the point that you raised at the beginning, which is how are we sharing the risks and benefits? It's cheaper for some, but the risks to those who are growing it or who live in the communities where it's grown, they're substantially greater. And I think that's sort of part of, that's when you get at the heart of this issue, which is, is there some amount of fairness or equity in the current system? And I think it seems like everyone here gives an unresounding no to that question. <laughs> uh, so we're going to talk a little bit. You raised a lot of issues, and we're going to start a little bit with food insecurity. And I think this is a, an important issue to talk about. What does that mean? Um, you know, what, what is food insecurity? What does it mean? What, how are we doing in that regard? Anybody want to pick up the... I would like to jump in right now. And um, there's a new book that's just coming out by Andy Fisher called Big Hunger. Yes. And it's, um, you know, it's a critique of, um, of, of how we have responded to food insecurity in this nation. And it's really interesting because Jan Poppendiek's book, uh, Sweet Charity, is now, I think, celebrating its, its 30th anniversary. And I think none of us really, we were talking about this before the panel opened, that none of us really thought that this was going to be a sort of forever thing with the, with the food insecurity. And, and now it's, uh, it's just a, a, a huge feature. And I mean, we've always had food insecurity you know, issues in our nation. But um, I think I you know, was looking today at the USDA website. But, you know, 13 million kids plus in this country are, are food insecure. That's, that's, that's significant. That is, that is not good for our nation. It's not good for the world. Our numbers locally um, are 
are pretty bad as well. Uh, in San Diego, one in seven San Diegans are food insecure and one in four children in San Diego County. So, you know, these numbers are problematic. Um, nationally, the statistics are that 43.1 million people live in poverty and 42.2 million people live in food insecure households. So that's consistent with what you said. And interestingly, I think what we've seen is a trend. There was, for a long period of time, those numbers were pretty low. And we had some pretty big financial crises, impacted a lot of folks, most recently 2008, right? So we had a, a large uptick in the percentage, and it got almost as high as 15%. And since then, it's been on a slow and steady decline, uh, and ultimately dropped a pretty pretty good amount last year to 12.7. But again, policy matters, right? How we react to this matter. And, and the bigger question that you're raising is, and I, and, I, and I also recommend the book that you said, which is, is this really the function of charities and NGOs, or is this something that's institutionalized now to a much greater extent, if anything, than before, that we have to resolve on an institutional level? Now, I know you were going to say something, so I'm sorry I interrupted you before. And I think just building on what you're saying, that it's a global issue, you know, food is... Um both a, it's it's a nutrition insecurity too. I think what we what we think of as food isn't necessarily um, in many cases what we would like to see most people eating, um, and so it's a very complicated issue. It's a, a agricultural issue. It's a health issue. It's an economic issue, um, and I think that there's it's a tool. It's an opportunity to open a conversation that relates to preserving cultural integrity and you know as you mentioned and the way we care for the the earth, the land, and, and our water and our resources. So food can be the, the opening of a dialogue that I think a lot can address a lot of these complex issues that, that revolve around it that are required I think to be addressed in order to solve this the food issue you know it's I wish there was a, a silver bullet I, I, I know everyone wants to jump in but I want to thank Dave Murphy who just got here Dave's the founder and director of food democracy now He's a fifth-generation Iowa farm boy by birth, uh, guest writer on food policy issues and environment, and we are happy to have you, and thanks for getting here. Thank you. And now it's on you. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, no, uh, let's you know, keep this going. Let's talk about These are the issues we're dealing with. We're, how about let, food insecurity? Yes, go ahead. I wanted to say, too, because I think um, we've, talked, we've mentioned charity a couple of times, and I think... It's a little bit dangerous to, to lump food insecurity with charity because what we, what we know, what we are getting greater knowledge about now is that food insecurity doesn't look like what we think it looks like. It's not necessarily somebody who's homeless. It's not somebody who's destitute. You mentioned it's one in four children. Highest percentage of SNAP or CalFresh participants are children. In San Diego, our military families, our college students, we were talking about this earlier. So it really is a right. It's, it's folks who are working. Most often these are people with jobs. And it's still it's a basic right that folks are not having in their daily lives. And so I think we need to move away from this idea that it's something that should come from charitable pockets. It's really just something that should be how we do business, how we provide for our community. What's an interesting, this has come up twice now, this argument or discussion, as is, is good food a right? And certainly within the international community, I think it's accepted that that is so. It seems less obvious to me that that has been accepted within our own country. Fair to say? Yeah. Anybody want to join in on that? Yeah, I, I think that's one of the great shortcomings of America. As, you know, we claim to be a Christian nation. I'll just say, I'm going to say that because I'm from a small town in Iowa. And a lot of farmers there are Republicans. And they claim to express certain values. 
as Christians. Mostly it contains to gay rights. And it's certainly not just farmers in the Midwest. I'm just saying the Republican Party. I do want to bring that up. And the problem is Christian charity never extends to the poor in America. And I think that's a great shortcoming of our nation. And I think the food movement can help overcome that. And it's really... And for me, I come from... We were talking about food deserts and food swamps. I told her I was going to be a little late. I apologize. When you see 110 miles on a map in Iowa, you can get there in an hour and a half. I'll just say that. Not quite Welcome the same. Welcome to California. Not quite the same story here in California. You guys have beautiful roads. I hope someday you learn to drive. I'm just going to say, they're amazing roads. Apology, apology. No, I'm just saying, you know, we really have a shortcoming in America understanding charity and understanding that I am my brother's keeper. That's something that we're taught in a small town and a value. And I have certainly escaped some of my far right evangelical upbringing. But I do still think it is part of our civic duty and our Christian duty to take care of other people. And it is a real shortcoming of this administration, when I say that, trying to cut SNAP, trying to cut programs that take care of children. And I'm from Iowa, so I've been frustrated. My parents raised a lot of money for the Republican Party in the 80s and 90s. And to see them lurch right, so far right, where they're cutting, you know, SNAP programs, they're cutting Head Start programs. That's really a moral crime. And I think Democrats really need to pick up the hammer, the moral hammer, and talk about these issues as moral injustices. And I want to say something in response to that. Um, look, I, I actually think it is a little bit more bipartisan, both the failures and the opportunities, right? So um, without necessarily, you know, focusing on any particular political party, I think clearly what we haven't done is deal with food as a right in this country, and that, that has to be the fundamental starting point. And so therefore charities, and again, I would say, I think the charitable groups and NGOs that are picking up, you know, sort of the ore to handle this are doing as good a job as they can. However, maybe the real question is go back to point A, is that is that really where this should be managed or should this be managed at a different level? But please. As an historian, um, I can tell you, in this nation, we view poverty as pathology. And we punish impoverished people. We take punitive actions. I also tell you, too, that um, I really value the NGOs and the organizations that have stepped up to deal with these issues. But the last time in, in our federal life when we went, oh, we'll let nonprofits and religious communities take care of this was the Herbert Hoover response in the Great Depression. And it didn't work, mm-hmm. right? There had to be a more... Um, a more institutionalized response to some of these issues to to address some of the big issues in that. Yeah, please. Yeah, it's, oh, sorry. It's interesting to, to mention that. I mean, we're a Jewish foundation, and a lot of our food justice strategies actually are inspired and informed by ancient Jewish traditions around tzedakah and peah and how we, you know, it's, it's a big part of what informs what we do. Explain that. Um, I, you know, there, without getting into too much too many of the, the weeds, but, you know, Jewish culture is an agricultural tradition. It goes back thousands of years, and so many of our values are built around agricultural relationships with the land, with animals, with people, and a lot of it's about caring for the community, caring for people, leaving the corners of your fields, donating the harvest, um, and much more. But I think to the, to the point of this, this, 
this, what we're talking about is it's, that's one piece of it, right? The faith community has a significant role. The charitable community has a significant role, but not alone. Not it's, alone. It, this is a, 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 gonna take every piece of the, you know, the, the resources that are in the corporate and government and healthcare and, and academia. It's gonna take all of them working together. Com- complex problem, complex solution, right? You were gonna say something. Yeah, I was gonna say that one of the things that we also have to pay attention to is the fact that food insecurity has a major ripple effect in terms of within our society around a lot of different things. I was actually shocked uh, about seven years ago, and I thought at this point in my life I'd never be shocked at all the things I'd seen, but uh, one of my colleagues was doing a study on poverty here in San Diego about seven years ago. And so as he was interviewing families, um, one, something came up that I, I was surprised about. And that they were saying that some of the parents were concerned that because some of their children were being recruited into some of the local gangs, and the recruitment tool that they were using was quality food. And I said, wow, I mean, that just stopped me in my tracks. You know, you think about money or, you know, drugs or anything else, but no, it was food because they were not, they didn't have access to that. And so the gang was saying, if you work with us and we'll give you the money that you can actually get quality food. Well, that tells you just how deep uh, the problem really is. You know, that, that is the problem, that we have neighborhoods in this city, in this area, in this state, and in this country. For example, one million Californians live in an area where it's at least a 20-minute drive to the nearest store with fresh produce. And this is not just you know, limited to California. It's a nationwide issue, but that's what one calls a food desert. And he mentioned the term food swamp earlier, but food swamp is a corollary to that, which is it turns out that the neighborhoods that tend not to have grocery stores and them with good fresh produce also have a plethora of convenience stores and fast food and things that are packaged, processed, and not you know necessarily as healthy for you. So that's a real issue. I mean, if food is a recruitment tool, yes, Fernando. No, I was just going to say, going back to the whole food injustice and really looking at putting a face to the situation that we have. As a community health center that's been around for over 45 years, we have about 61,000 patients and about a little over 70% of those fall within 100% of the federal poverty level. So we see these situations every single day. And what's very sad is that um, for the first time, I think people are starting to recognize that food injustice and nutrition injustice is huge. For many, many years, healthcare centers have been providing the best service they can provide, the most comprehensive services that they can provide, but we weren't seeing behavior change. We weren't seeing changes in the health, and we kept going back to the patient. They're just not doing what they're supposed to be doing. They keep coming back. Maybe they don't understand. Maybe they don't understand the language. Maybe they don't know how to read. When all along, we were giving them tools, but they didn't have the funding to use those tools to better themselves with healthier food products. So that's been something that community health centers are now having to change. Um, We now have many health centers that are providing food as part of the care that we provide for patients. That was something you wouldn't see 10 years ago, five years ago, but now we have no choice. We recognize that if we want to make someone healthy, especially the population we serve, we're going to have to provide or assist them with the food that they need in order to become healthy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think this is a 
as, as we know, we have a, a huge epidemic of diabetes in the Latino, African-American community, and then I think growing in, in, in our Anglo communities also. And it was interesting, because just this afternoon, I had a call from a friend of mine uh, who happens to be a vice president of Coca-Cola. And he was asking me if I would endorse uh, their campaign to stop a tax on uh, on sodas in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and and that they would be willing to give me a nice little grant for my foundation. And so I said to him, "Gee, I hate to tell you this, but I'm on the other side of this issue." Okay. <laughs> and in, in my in my organization, part of the work that we do uh, is that we're actually in seven different school districts. We have been able to get all of the sh- sugar sweet beverages out of the schools, including chocolate milk, which was the, the hardest one. And so we know that when we look at food, we can also look as, uh, I'm going to say this, and this is going to be sound crazy, but food is poison. Uh, food is poison because we know that when people are, have diabetes and they eat the wrong kind of food, they're just going to go blind or, you know, lose their limbs or whatever, whatever. And, 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 we, and, and we, again, looking at policy, our go- in, in our uh, food policy that we have, our Department of Agriculture, we subsidize meat. You know, we subsidize beef and we subsidize poultry, but we do not subsidize vegetables, you know. And we know that this is a, a great problem right now. So, and when food, uh, poor families, you know, they can go to McDonald's and get a meal or a jack-in-the-box, but they can't go and buy organic produce. You know, they can't buy produce that is safe. And so uh, I think we have to look at it from that aspect. Also, what can we do? Not only, and we know the culture has a great deal to do with the way people eat, you know, I, I had I once made my one of my friends uh, uh, tofu enchiladas, and never, I didn't tell them that it was tofu until after they had finished eating. Yeah, and they, you know, and I made a brown rice casserole instead of white rice, and didn't tell them until afterwards, and they thought it was great, but they never knew. So you know, we have a lot of uh, we have a lot of work to do to change people's behaviors on eating, but then also to really step up to our government and say, you've got to subsidize food that is good for people and not just the beef versus. I wanted to see if you wanted to add anything, because I know the report that you gave us showed this direct correlation between food deserts and higher rates of obesity, diabetes, heart disease, and cancer, and showed as well that food insecurity was sort of at the top of the list of um, sort of health risks in, in the client that you serve. So tell us a little bit about that. Um, actually, first, I would like to go a little bit on the, the diabetes um, information that Rosa gave because there's this um, phenomenal researcher out of San Francisco. Her name is Dr. Hillary Seligman, and she helped to inspire a lot of the work and the eye-opening that's happened within our healthcare system as well about this intersection with hunger and health. And she did a study here in California that looked specifically at low-income individuals, patients at the hospitals, diagnosed with diabetes, and she saw a trend specifically with this patient population that at the end of the month, there was a 27% increase in ED admissions for hypoglycemia, which is a very severe consequence of diabetes, and it means you don't have enough food. When she compared that to the first week of the month of ED admissions, does anyone know what happens at the first week of the month? You get exactly you get your SNAP benefit, and so specifically for this population, it was a direct link. It was one of these landmark studies that really concretely showed how access to healthy food can have severe negative impacts on your health if that's something that you don't have in your life. Um, but what Michelle was mentioning, so a lot of the work that the hospitals in San Diego County have been doing, 
We have for quite some time been required to talk to our community and assess their health needs. This is something we've been doing for over 20 years. Um, but this time around, just in 2016, we did things a little bit differently and focused much more on those, those issues that happen once individuals leave our hospitals. What is it that they're going home to? What is it that they don't have when they get home? Do they have a home? Um, and we were able to assess from talking with residents and also talking with individuals at community clinics, patient care navigators, to really the, talking with the finger, people who have their fingers on the pulse of what's happening out in the community. Um, but there, there was a list of what we term social determinants of health um, that might be familiar to some of you, but basically everything that happens that's non-medical but that impacts your health. And for San Diego County, food insecurity was identified as the number one across the board. Um, yeah, which has been incredibly eye-opening. And um, one thing I am happy to say that as a result of that, because this is always the next question, right? Well, that's great. You found out all that information. What are you going to do with it? Um, that's our first Twitter question. Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> well, um, part of what the I'm part of the hospital association. Part of what we have done is to take a proactive approach to policy. So pulling together a policy agenda that reflects those needs we've identified in our needs assessment, and food insecurity is top of the list. Um, and if anybody is interested in being an advocate for any of those policies, um, there's some resources we can definitely share. So one of the ways that we've decided to address the issue is that we've now partnered with Feeding America. So they come to the clinic twice a month, and we set up shop. The food is completely uh, free. So. The folks that we're specifically referring to our program include the diabetics. We currently have between three to 4,000 diabetics. Um, and then our pregnant moms, which are also affected. You know, the last thing you want to do is for a pregnant mom to go without having any nutritional food because then you have a low birth uh, weight baby, which, uh, which leads to a bunch of other concerns. Um, and then we also serve a large HIV positive population. So um, it's something that we've been providing now for probably the last year and a half. Most recently, I want to thank personally Coastal Roots for the work that they've done because they are now introducing vegetables, fruits and vegetables to our population. And the great thing about it is that the folks or our patients that access these vegetables are allowed to pay whatever they can. So if they can't pay anything, they still, they're still able to take something nutritional home. And I want to put a plug in for specifically our Latino population, because many times we're referred to as uneducated, they don't understand, they don't understand the language. We definitely understand the language. We understand what it takes to be healthy. The problem is many of us don't have the funds to buy the healthy food that we're being asked to purchase. And an example is a typical patient of ours who went through some nutrition classes and learned about how much protein she needs to eat, number of carbohydrates, the nice colorful plate, and how you should divide your food. Well, that got interpreted as, well, first of all, I don't have access to fruits and vegetables, so I'm not sure how I'm gonna make that up. But when I went to the 99 cent store, I noticed the frozen food that they have, the frozen plates. They have vegetables, they have steak, they have dessert, the carbohydrates. And so there was an assimilation here with this frozen food packet as at least beginning to attempt to try to be 
healthy and to feed their children healthy. And so those, you know, those are the everyday things that, that we see. So again, when you talk about in food injustice, it just kind of puts a spark under me because I think everyone should have the right to do it, especially individuals that are here in this country that work very, very hard, work many hours, and the shame that they still don't make enough money to feed their family healthy food is truly an injustice. Well, that, that goes a little bit back to what you said at the beginning, which is that for whatever reason in our culture, we tend to sort of victim shame on this issue, whether it's poverty or food choices or culture. Uh, the entire sort of system is sort of aligned against the individual who's trying to do the best they can. Uh, it's finances. It's also access because, again, many people don't live in a neighborhood that they can get the kind of food that is healthy. But let's talk for a second about what you're doing there. I'm curious about this connection. Tell us about yeah, it. Yeah, it's been a wonderful partnership um, with Vista Community Clinic, and we also do the same thing at Camp Pendleton where Coastal Roots Farm does a pop-up. We're in Encinitas, um, so we're lucky to have a great base of supporters, volunteers, donors in, in our community. There's not a lot of poverty. There is some um, but so we we've really had a strategy of how do we go and bring the farm to the communities that really need the food that we're growing, um, and so we grow organic, biodynamic vegetables, harvested same day. Um, our farm staff that are all paid a living wage and have benefits, um, and volunteers drive out to Vista Community Clinic. Um, we actually just got a new truck that um, we got a grant from the county. That's a nice pop-up. Uh, produce truck so we're not unpacking the boxes and the tables we can actually pop open the truck and be more efficient <clears throat> and so we go to, to the to the Vista Community Clinic and in that case we do a pay what you can model um, where it's a very dignified um, relationship with the customer where they you know we have suggested pricing but they pay whatever they feel comfortable and can afford at Camp Pendleton it's free um, and it's kind of horrifying how much poverty and food insecurity there is on our own military bases um, so, but you know, we're we're trying to make an impact, and there's still so much more that we want to do and can do. I think one of the issues that Dolores pointed out that's I think at the root, and we could probably have a whole panel just on this, is like how do we get those fresh fruits and vegetables grown locally by farmers that have have fair wages and um, and even farmers that have land equity and things like that. And it's really hard. You know, we're lucky to have a Leash Tag Foundation and a community that supports the kind of uh, work we're doing. It's hard enough to make it as a small farmer growing the way that we should be growing, selling it at a premium. Um, but then to actually be able to donate and, and to pay what you can, it's that much harder. So it takes a community to get behind these kinds of efforts and support them. Um, so it's, you know, how do, we, how do we, I think the subsidies need a shift and policies need a shift to support getting the right kind of food to, the, to everybody. Um, so there's a whole agricultural piece of where that food comes from and how it's grown and, and how it gets to the, and, and then there's a layer of education that we're working to build on where there's nutrition education. Because it's one thing to get, you know, a bunch of kale and a kohlrabi that's really good for diabetes, but how do you cook it? What do you do with it? You know, and that so, was the next question from the audience is, so does that include sort of, you know, instruction on, on how to prepare these or how to incorporate them into food you like? Yeah. yeah actually, we actually uh, are doing this also. Uh, uh, the way that we work is that we organize uh, people at the grassroots level in, into, into neighborhoods. 
And so just recently, we had a whole cooking demonstration on how to cook healthy food. And actually, again, talking about the culture, but, you know, like the squash, the corn, and the beans are very indigenous, you know, and very indigenous and indigenous to Latinos, actually. So sometimes they find that uh, recent immigrants that just get here to the United States have better healthy behaviors than the the first or the second and the third generation. Forget it. They're, They're totally lost. Now, you talked about that. They're oh, sorry, McDonald, all at McDonald. But uh, so I think community gardens are another thing that is really helping right now to be able to promote that. And, uh, and it's always a fight with the local uh, public officials. Like they had a, a beautiful one in Monterey County uh, that they just uh, cut in half and raised it, you know, just for development. And, and that, there's another system that I think is really exciting uh, where you have uh, local farmers that get people to subscribe. And they pay so much a month and then they are delivered their fresh vegetables right uh, right right to their house you know, they, CSA they to, boxes everybody yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think that is something that really could be done in every single community if we can just promote it and then of course we have a, a, in California we have what it gets like about maybe 3,500 or 4,000 organic farmers that are small farmers and that are doing uh, growing food not for profit but growing food so it's nutritious and to serve the community so I think that there's you know there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah. And some <laughs> of those CSA models, what we at Coastal Roots, we launched our CSA this, this season, and kind of a similar approach to the pay what you can is we have um, basically donation shares or pay what you can CSA shares as well. So, you know, CSAs tend to be a little bit more affordable because you're kind of pre-purchasing and you're taking the risk with the farmer and so as a return for that investment you get a weekly share at kind of of a reduced price if you were to go buy it at a retailer and you're cutting out the middleman and the shipping and um, but what we've been doing we actually have um, a number of holocaust survivor csa members that get a free share and other families who are able to pay more help kind of to subsidize some of those donation shares so there's an interesting model within the csa that also kind of um, addresses some of the affordability issues Now, we know that some of the farmers' markets now can take SNAP benefits and WIC benefits, certainly in our community and around the country. I don't know yet if that's extended to any of these CSAs, but clearly the CSA seems to be the best bargain in terms of an institutionalized process. Farmers' market is probably just after that, and then you get a little bit more expensive as you go sort of up the food chain. But that's an important thing, is that we need to have affordability, access, and the benefits that are available, we need to make sure that they can be spent as easily on fresh produce at a market stand like yours as they can be on what's cheap and available in the corner store and not necessarily as healthy, right? Uh, and Fernando, you were going to say something. Sorry, uh, go ahead, Rose, yeah, go. Well, a couple things. Cooking. Yes. Um, you know, we're starting to want to cook again, but we don't really know how to cook, many of us. We lost and a generation. We, we lost, a, <laughs> yeah, at least, at least one generation. And one of the things that's really encouraging me right now is that there's a movement towards teaching kitchens, which actually is, goes way back to, like, um, the settlement houses, right? You know, whole house, stuff like that, teaching kitchens way, way back. And I think that's encouraging on college campuses, too. The University of California is doing these, these cooking classes and then also doing farmer's markets and, and things like that on the campuses, which I think is really um, a wonderful thing to do. And then gardens. And I, I think about even, um, you know, I write about Victory Gardens in World War I and World War II and, and the power of communities and individuals to garden. And I garden a lot, but that actually makes me buy more 
from farmers because you grow a bunch of stuff I can't grow. <laughs> and so um, they're I, the experts. I, yeah, they're the experts, right? And so I actually end up buying more from farmers. And one, one little thing to add to that, I think, you know, teaching someone to fish, right, this whole philosophy is like if you can teach someone to grow their own food, um, it gives them their own tools. And the most affordable food is to convert a $3 packet of seeds into, you know, $100 worth of veggies in your front yard. And, and that's something you do. And there, there's you're passing out with your, you know, intergenerationally with your kids and, and a community garden with the community has multiple other benefits, but one of them clearly being that you can kind of take control of your own, um, your own food production and that's a... Did you have something to say? No, okay. I, I was trying to ask, I turned to you to ask your question. There, we, you mentioned something about uh, using food stamps or to buy SNAP at, at farmer's markets. And that was an important public policy gain. Is the White Wave Foundation? Gus Schumacher was really behind... Right. Yeah. Well, I can't. Host, I'm sorry, host. My, I'm mixing it's, them up there. Yes. Yeah, yeah, Gus Schumacher, who is a former, I think, deputy, not deputy secretary, head of foreign services, agriculture under Clinton. He had, in his retirement years, he never really has retired. He's full time. He's in his late seventies, at least. I mean, just saying, Gus Schumacher, and they they really wanted to get fresh fruits and vegetables on SNAP payment. And so, I think the last farm bill, and then they worked closely with Secretary Vilsack to try to get that smoothed out. But um, I love, Dolores, that you were called by a Coca-Cola executive <laughs> because I think it's really important to introduce the idea of how our food environment is so controlled by corporations and corporate advertising and corporate influence of philanthropy. I'll just say that's something that we've seen in Iowa. Iowa's got a lot of corporate ag front groups. I'll just say, like, so the, the, the important thing about the soda tax is the media has played an unfair side in this story they really, I mean, people, soda should be a treat, but everyone here drinks it like it's, I say in Iowa, we almost think Coca-Cola is safer to drink than our well water. Yeah, and, you know, also bottled water is safer to drink than your well water because of pesticides and fertilizer runoff. But the amazing thing is the story this week just came out, Berkeley Soda's tax, one year in, 10% drop in sales for soda. That's terrible for a soda company, maybe, but it's really good for families. It's really good for children that are no longer hopefully going to have, be tempted by that. And the more important thing is there was a 16% increase in water consumption. I mean, that, that's huge. So the funny thing is, in the, the way the media tells a story, I helped do the GMO labeling battles. I'm not sure if anyone's familiar with that, but, but I, I, know, I know you are. But So here's the thing. It's corporate influence that sways public opinion. They, they mislead the conversation on science in the media. And, you know, it's really small gains like that that, have, that we can do as citizens that can have a major impact. And I would just, you know, thinking of Gus Schumacher working tirelessly behind the scenes to get this. I can't remember what they call it. It's like this. Double up. Double. Yeah, okay, the double up bucks. You, you forget so much in this, in this work. You know, I mean, you forget what you used to know. So I can't remember. But I'm just saying, like, it's really important to support public policy. And the, the Farm Bill is a major piece of legislation where you as a consumer, even if you, I mean, as Wendell Berry says, everyone who, you know, agriculture, eating is an agricultural act. And my philosophy is eating is a political act as well. And so every time you buy something, you're supporting a system politically and legislatively, even though the media will not tell you that story. And I'm just saying, like, so the problem in, in these small towns in rural America, what I've seen is we used to have grocery stores. We used to have decent grocery stores. 
I lived a block south of Harlem. When I came back 10 years later, I realized that there was no difference between the food that was being sold in these small towns. A lot of them lost their grocery stores. There's a Walmart 20 miles away, so everyone drives 20 miles to that Walmart. Now, they do have good, decent food at Walmart, but the question is, you know, we've, we've really decimated food economies, and even people in rural, rural Iowa, the Midwest, it's not a food desert, it's a food wasteland. So talk about subsidies influencing policy. Iowa is corn and soybeans. When in the 1920s, they used to have one of the largest apple, they used to have the largest yes. apple orchards. And so because of public policy, they've made it so all the fruits and vegetables are grown in California. And then all the corn and soybean commodities are grown in the Midwest. Yeah, and if you ever want to learn more about um, diversified farming systems in Iowa, how they were and how they're not now, read Deborah Fitzgerald's Every Farm a Factory and got all these charts about, you know, Iowa was like orchards and it was very different than it is now. Now we had a question again from, from the audience. Um, someone wants an explanation of Victory Gardens because in today's world, first of all, many younger people may not be familiar with what that means, but, but more importantly, we've come full circle in the opposite direction where we had someone in Los Angeles who got in trouble for planting gardens in the median strip, right? That wasn't permissible. So tell us a little bit about Victory Gardens, what they were, and then maybe how we get back there. I'll be really brief because there's actually a really wonderful book out there that I wrote and so so but I'll be really brief and so um, and it, it, it they're a hundred years old they were actually started out as Liberty Gardens in World War one and the idea was uh, these very real concerns about uh, food as national security in the United States and there wasn't a very organized or coherent food system and Europe of course our allies were starving and so um, there was a, a it started out as a grassroots effort then was sort of picked up by the government to encourage home, school, community, and workplace gardens. And this happened in World War I. It was such a success. And actually, um, it got, you know, readopted in World War II. And the estimates um, in World War II were that during 1943, you know, probably two to three-fifths of Americans were estimated to have had a garden. But I'll tell you what was really interesting about how wartime drove food policy in this nation is that the first federal curriculum as we would understand it in the United States was during World War I, and it was called the United States School Garden Army. And it was the federal government rolling out curriculum to teach urban and suburban kids how to grow food because it was viewed as being an essential part of American citizenship. And in fact, Abraham Lincoln, when he was running for president in 1859, he told a group of Wisconsin farmers to sort of paraphrase that as long as Americans knew how to grow food, no matter how small the plot, that we would be free from oppression, from kings, and from money lenders. <laughs> Still true. <laughs> Still true. Sorry, go ahead, Dolores. Yeah, I think the other thing about public policy is we don't realize, you know, uh, we know the immigration issue is a really big issue right now. You know, they want to build a wall. Uh, we're now facing uh, deportations of many of our farm workers. Uh, I just heard today that back in Kern County, our local sheriff, uh, Mr. Youngblood is, uh, like Sheriff Arpaio in Arizona, is going to start doing sweeps of all the farm workers. But it's interesting when you think, who are these people that have come here from Mexico? 
the majority of them have been farmers. And the reason, because they have been displaced because of the corn in the United States of America, because Mexico now imports more corn to Mexico. Before Mexico, this is, this is where the corn started. The maize, you know, it's native to Mexico. But now they import more corn from the United States because it's cheaper. And all of these, you know, 800,000 or more, or maybe a million uh, local farmers have been displaced. What are they going to do? They're not going to starve. They're going to come to the United States. They're going to come north. The other thing about corn, I'm talking about ethanol. You know, how much of the corn is going to make ethanol that's going into, in, into uh, you know, into gasoline that we don't need it to go there? The other thing is the corn that is being fed to cattle. And, you know, it's not healthy for cattle to eat corn. It's not their natural food. And yet, you know, we have these huge subsidies that we give to corn farmers, you know. Uh, so these are some of the things that really boggle your mind. And then talking about the, the corporate agriculture like Monsanto, right? Monsanto, you know, who also produces all of the pesticides or so many of the pesticides. And now that they have put some of these pesticides right into the plants themselves. And uh, talking about gen- the, the GMOs, the uh, genetically modified uh, products. And uh, we just lost a bill in Washington, D.C., which we were all working on, uh, so that we could put the labels on the produce if it's genetically modified. And of course, you know, if you, if you get your little banana, it's going to have a Chiquita label on that, you know, or a dough label on it. But the growers said, no, we can't put a GMO label on our food. And they literally, what they did, the law that was passed by and Mr. Pompey, who now has a high position in the cabinet, he was CIA a congressman. Director. Yeah? CIA director. Yeah. yeah. And <laughs> anyway, uh, uh, you know, he was the, the person that kind of led that fight. And what they did, they kind of turned state rights around because you had about 14 states that had already were, had passed or were in the process of passing uh, the labeling for GMO products, okay? And we lost that fight, and they did it during the Democratic Convention when everybody was at the convention, and they were able to get that law through. I want to I respond to something you started with, which was this issue of immigration and how it relates to food and farming. And uh, there was a recent article in the USA Today citing a recent uh, academic study that basically said that, you know, the better part of the entire U.S. agricultural system, that's both produce and protein, would simply fall apart without the temporary migrant up to 75% of whom may be undocumented workforce. And so as we talk here, we sit here talking about food insecurity among farm workers, among people in food deserts. We may be also talking about food insecurity of our entire nation. So these things really do interrelate, uh, you know, so that you raised a lot of issues, but that one stuck with me at the beginning. I'm sorry, somebody else wanted to chime in. I I saw a head bobbing there. No? Well, one thing I'd wanted to say is that... um, when, uh, when we're working in neighborhoods and trying to encourage people to start to grow their own food mm-hmm. um, so that they have some control over what they're, what they're uh, eating, um, there's three points that I usually try to, to weave into the discussion. One of them is um, uh, I try to give them a quick summary of a study that the California Endowment did a number of years ago that basically says your zip code will determine how long you live. Mm. Um, and so what that basically means is that through the study, they were showing that in poor neighborhoods, um, the people usually could expect to live 15 years less than people living in, in uh, affluent neighborhoods. There's a number of different factors that go into that, but one of them is healthy food, the availability of healthy food. Uh, the second thing that I always talk about is 
we talk about healthy food, what does that mean? What are we really talking about, you know? And so I, I talked to them about the fact that a number of years ago, I went to a, a seminar that was put on by a, a brain researcher. And he started, actually, I, was, I, I didn't really know this until uh, listening to him, but what he talked about was the correlation between certain types of food and the positive development of brains, particularly for kids. So things like blueberries and uh, salmon and things like that. You know, actually, ever since then, I have blueberries every morning for breakfast now. <laughs> but uh, but it, you know, those were the things. So it's important for you to be able to to have those things, but how do you get access to it if, you, if you're living in, in poor areas? The third thing is that um, I read a study that's really talking about now how food is being used to actually treat certain kinds of, of physical ailments. Um, there's a big study around uh, women uh, that are experiencing postpartum challenges that they're not prescribing medicine, but they're prescribing changing your diet and providing the certain kinds of food that will really be able to help. So I really try to help people to understand the importance of gaining control of what you're eating. And, um, and if you don't have access, let's try to find ways to create those access. Julie? Yeah, I was just would love to talk more. So there is this, um, you know, the idea Dolores mentioned food as poison, but there is this, you know, more positive concept of food as medicine. And so there have been a number of programs. Um, obviously, this is happening at Vista Clinics. Sharp has a couple of programs as well. Um, but all across the country, this idea of food prescriptions has really started to gain traction. So individuals can literally see their doctor and get a pad that is written that either um, refers them to a farmer's market that they have a relationship with, an on-site food pantry that might actually be on the hospital campus or um, health system campus. Your insurance would cover the cost of the food? It's just straight. It's just a partnership between the hospital and that organization so that the, whatever contracting they have worked out. So, for example, Sharp, we have... Um, Sorry. We have a partnership also with Feeding San Diego, which um, provides medically tailored food to a certain patient population where we're actually screening for food insecurity. And with that identification, we just bring that to them. Um, And again, it's this idea also of having dignity with the patient. And so when you're talking about a food prescription, this is just something that is matter for the course to maintain your health. There is no shame. There is nothing else attached other than we want to keep you healthy. And so it's... Your point is well taken, and it's hopefully something that's going to continue to gain traction. Um, and there are a number of models here in San Diego where that's happening. And those programs are absolutely necessary. What people don't realize that when you say, well, you know, a lot of our patients are accessing SNAP or CalFresh or some of these other programs. If you look at how much they actually get for that, people think that they're getting a couple hundred dollars. The reality is they can get between $18 to $125. Is it like so, $1.40 per meal per day? Basically. Best, right? So when you're looking at that amount of money and using those dollars to purchase healthy food products, doesn't go very far. The population we haven't talked about yet is also our senior population. So the seniors, if you look at what they're getting, they're getting between $18 to $54. So try to imagine what you can do with that money in one month and see what you can purchase with that amount of money. So when people think that we're already serving this population by giving them these EBT cards that they can go and purchase stuff, they'll probably last a week. And that's why these programs continue to 
pop up um, because it's needed. And otherwise, these folks are never going to get any healthy food. And especially with the senior population, another policy challenge is if they are on SSI, they do not qualify for CalFresh, which is another huge issue. Well, seniors is one group that's very more affected than than the average person. And the other one is that mothers and children, in particular single mothers with children, uh, are the group that's hardest hit by everything we're talking about, food insecurity, lack of access. And I I would challenge anyone to try to, you know, get a healthy meal on a buck 40. Uh, It's not not so easy. And we had a question from the audience. It's a little bit of a follow-up to some of what we've talked about earlier, which is this issue of some food is cheap while other food is not so cheap. And you gave the example, I think, or Dave, about McDonald's, right? So I can, I always, when I try, when I travel in an airport, I always bring food with me because I'm, I can never find anything in there that seems edible to me. And I noted that if I, there's one thing, they usually have celery and hummus, but it's like $18 to get two packs of celery and hummus, like this much celery and a tablespoon of hummus, whereas I could get five Happy Meals <laughs> for the same amount of money. And now that just logically what we know about growing plants and growing plants to feed animals and then there's some produce on that in that meal as well how is that possible somebody want to talk to me about how it is possible well i think dolores really hit it which is the subsidies and it's, it's a global issue and um you know that's there's a whole conference dedicated to the true cost of food and it's so complicated you know the social impacts the environmental impacts the transportation costs the health impacts it's you know it's it's all very difficult to measure, so it's a little hidden. But when you really start to unpack it and really see how harmful um, these, you know, the poisonous food that is kind of the mainstream, the standard American diet, the sad diet, so to speak, fast food, big, big ag, um, it's it's horrifying. I mean, it's for me when I realized, you know, I had a very short personal story 22 years ago. You know, as a freshman in college, I was eating a turkey sandwich, and I'm like, oh, you know, for some reason, I'm like, where did this thing come from? And like, who grew it, and how did they grow it? And I started, I just went and kind of poked around and followed my turkey sandwich, and it was horrifying how far that traveled and how much chemicals and how the farm, I mean, it, so just a simple, and, and so I think we need to educate people about, you know, where our food comes from, how it's grown, our relationship to it. That's one way to start. But it, we have to, the other levels, the policy. So, I mean, people can make choices and, and the market can drive change. Um, again, it comes back to this complex, we need all these pieces of the working together. Um, but yeah, a lot of it's at the policy level because if we keep it is. And, subsidizing and, and it. And some of the, the best work that was done about the food mile was done at the Leopold Institute yeah. in Iowa. Which was just and defunded. Just, just defunded yeah. this week by the Iowa Republican legislature. The Senate, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, Tell us know, about the work. Well, I mean, you, you and I both have done work. Please. Yeah. No, go ahead. You go ahead. Well, you're, you're from <laughs> Iowa. So the Leopold you know, Center for Sustainable Agriculture is a pretty amazing organization. It was started in the belly of the beast of modern commodity agriculture in Ames, Iowa, Iowa State University. And I'll just say the Obama administration had an antitrust hearing there, and we had it on seeds. The building at Iowa State University that we had it in was donated by Monsanto and, and DuPont. So I'm just saying that's kind of who owns those universities there. And they really had, I think, Fred Kirshenman was the founding director. So Fred Kirshenman is, uh, ironically, he has a PhD in religion, and he's a very smart academic scholar, but he has 4,000, he's a farmer as well. He has 4,000 acres of organic farm in, in North Dakota. So Iowa is blessed to have an intellectual giant in, in our midst that understands the real negative impacts of commodity agriculture. 
And I want to you talk about like so subsidies. How do subsidies change the landscape for farmers and the environment? And I would just say, so we've su- subsidized corn to subsidize you, to lower the grain costs so the farmers can afford that. We subsidize the soybeans so the farmers can afford that feed cost. The other thing is we built factory farms all over the Midwest, and the, the Leopold Center was very foundational. And what what um, Fred Kirschman did was try to institute studies that proved that sustainability and sustainable agricultural practices were long-term beneficially for the environment, but also economically for farmers, and that's what they've done. The ironic thing is Iowa is kind of <clears throat> really the belly of commodity agriculture. I mean, Monsanto, the pork producers, the Cattlemen's Association, they control our government. I live in a banana, I mean, Iowa's a banana republic. You know, we have the worst water quality in the country because our, our Democrats and Republicans, they both play this issue. They refuse to pass common sense laws that protect citizens from factory farms being close to them, from polluting the water. And, and Iowa has some of the most polluted water in the planet. We actually have the largest nitrate filtration system on the planet. That's scary. And so what Leopold Center did was basically an academic watchdog to look over to track long-term trends of agriculture production, but also to show another way. So sustainable farmers. And one policy question I want to go back to is, so how do we subsidize commodity industrial agriculture? In Iowa, one of the ways they did it, and they did this in Washington, D.C., the Iowa Farm Bureau, the Iowa pork producers, working with the national pork producers, they convinced members of Congress that they should give $350,000 to someone who wanted to build a factory farm so it's called the Quip. Remember Quip payment fights? So a Quip was basically an Olympic-sized swimming pool built over 5,000 hogs. So they would stand there for six months and urinate and defecate in this giant pit. This is where your bacon comes from, essentially. But each one of these buildings got $350,000 of government handouts. This is, this, is, this is real pork spending these Olympic-sized swimming pools. Just imagine what a community could do with a grant for $350,000 to get, to get fruits and vegetables into underprivileged communities. Just imagine what a farmer could do, you know what I'm saying, with $35,000 to farm improvements so you could help this. But that's the kind of infrastructure battles that we have in, in Des Moines, in these state capitals, but also in, in, in Washington, D.C., which, you know, Trump said he was going to drain the swamp. I think he's getting trained by the swamp. Not to bring up politics, but I'll just say it's a really tough place to be a reformer in in Washington, D.C. because of political contributions. But, you know, for us in Iowa, looking at issues of access, one of the things that you've talked about, would you you help ban DDT? So we're trying to ban glyphosate, which is the main chemical ingredient in Montana's Roundup. And the sad thing is we put out a report this last fall about glyphosate residues in food and one of the highest levels we found in Cheerios, which is sad. But I'm just saying that it was really sad. I had an Iowa mother in a town of 2,500 people call me and says, I have stage 4 breast cancer. I'm an hour from, from Omaha. How can I get organic food? I'm just saying, like this, the, the the level of poverty in these small towns and the level of sickness that you talked about, they're, we're exposed to agricultural chemicals, and there's no really help. I mean, we, I think we had to drive 20 miles to get access to organic food at, in a Target, you know, in, in the small town in Iowa that we lived in. 
Well, you know, I mean, look, I th again, I think clearly politics do come into play because as we're talking about how these kinds of broad-based policy changes come into effect, well, we elect people and they pass policy, so uh, or enact policy. But I think, look, we can talk about the problems here. There's subsidies. There's also externalizing costs, whether it's environmental or other. And then, of course, the poorer communities and also, therefore, the farm worker and specifically communities are more adversely affected by this kind of policy. Now, we don't know. The new budget is coming out, but we've seen some writing on the wall, and there uh, is at least expected to be a 21% drop in the USDA budget, 21% drop in the DOL. There's also reduction in the EPA. And some of the EPA budgeting uh, laws is specifically to look at things like endocrine disruption caused by pesticides like glyphosate in the general community and more specifically in the farm community. So look, I think that what that does is tell the citizens that we need to be aware of these kinds of issues. We need to understand what the problems are. And look, it's complex, but figure out how to engage, how to get involved. You know, you can act in your community by growing food, by making it available or, or bringing people together. But some of us also will want to sort of nudge our elected officials in the direction that, that we think they need to be headed. Yeah, go yeah, ahead. I think when you talk about the Farm Bill, for instance, uh, it would be really good to look at who's getting the subsidies. I remember back in the day when we had uh, a cotton grower uh, in Central Valley. Central Valley, by the way, is pretty much the situation that you spoke about uh, in terms of contamination, etc. But uh, this particular grower was getting a subsidy not to grow cotton on his airport strip. And he was getting millions of dollars in subsidies not, not, not to grow cotton. And then he had, um, was growing cotton in Australia, and he was getting subsidies there to grow cotton. So he was getting it from both sides. And uh, so I think we would look at that farm bill. If they're going to cut 21%, then we should make sure that that 21% is cut from the people that are getting subsidies. And I remember there was an article in the New York Times about a, a, a farm area in Mississippi where they had cut... Uh, the welfare programs, but the local farmer there was getting a huge amount of money for subsidies. So we should look at that bill and make sure that the SNAP programs are not cut, you know, that the, uh, the Meals on Wheels, et cetera, that those programs is, are going to be there. And I remember one grower, the Gallo Wine Company is, you know, the largest wine company in, in California, not in the United States of America, was getting subsidies to market their wine in Asia. Give me a break here, okay? So I think we should look at that and really see where the money is going to be spent. And then just as, as we did on the Affordable Care Act recently, you know, go to those Congress people and say to them, look, this is where you have to cut. We don't want you to cut uh, the money, the, you know, money that is feeding the poor or the elderly or, or children. Well, one of the areas that's, I think, on the chopping block or may very well be is about Community Development Block Grant Program, which creates the mobile farmers markets, which, of course, is what you just talked about, which is how you get fresh produce into communities that either don't have farm, don't have land, or don't have the kind of grocery store that provides that. And so that adversely affects low-income communities. It also adversely affects small farmers because that's that also makes it easier for them to market the product they have. So there's a there's an alliance here between small farmers and farm workers and people in community that if we can sort of push back and say this isn't okay, cut somewhere else. You know, the other thing that always is is, is eyeballed in the in the farm bill is the stamp benefits, right? So, you know, the, the things that are being cut are not the things that you're talking about. The things that are creating the health crises that you 
mentioned um, and that are making sort of good food expensive and bad food cheap. So we do have to keep our elected officials focused in the way that we want them to, and that is our collective well, power. And I, I think um, there are elected official, officials who don't understand or or won't listen to the fact or acknowledge the fact that uh, programs like SNAP are actually economic drivers. You know, that they really add, they, they generate economic activity in communities. Uh, Tell us what you mean by that. Explain well, that. that, you know, I, I can't even remember what the latest um, statistic is, but, you know, it's, it brings more e economic activity. It's not just like a flat dollar going through a system. More spending at the local More level. More spending at the local level. And it's, it's, important, it's an important economic dynamic. And I also worry, too, in the new farm bill about, you know, in, in the proposal about whether um, beginning farming, uh, those programs which have been really successful. and New farmers. New farmers. Right. Because uh, what's the median age of farmers? 70? 57. Oh, well, it might have gone up to 58, yeah. Okay. But it was 57. Yeah. Right, so we, we are not growing as many new farmers as we have retiring farmers, right? Because of all the things we just talked about. And cutting that program, which sort of helps new farmers get started, is also, I think, counterproductive in what we're talking about. Yep. I just want to go back to the point you, you brought up. In Iowa, the idea is that agriculture is an economic generator. So the, the, the phrase or the, the numbers that we throw around is every dollar that's spent by a farmer in the local community and made is generate, turns around seven times in that economy. So in 2000, Food Democracy Now, we started in 2000, December 2008. February 2009, we had a meeting with Secretary Tom Vilsack from Iowa. It wasn't that hard to get, I'll give you that much, because he's a former two-term governor of Iowa. We had a meeting there, and we talked, and we wanted to talk about sustainability, and we pitched local school lunch programs and trying to help farmer, local area, get, get grants to local area farmers to get fruits and vegetables so they wouldn't just come frozen and, you know, and talk about how that's an economic generator. I, you know, the fastest way to a farmer's heart is through his wallet, and I think the same thing is true with an elected official. So, you know, <clears throat> we, we, we have talk a, economics. We have a local, I know we're talking about kind of community action. We have a local example of that, that... You know, we're, our farm is next door to the Encinitas Union School District's farm lab site, which is a 10-acre site where they teach all the kids in the school district about science, nutrition, math, through farming. We also actually, Coastal Roots Farm has a management contract. So instead of them spending money at the Cisco truck, they invested in, in their local nonprofit farm to grow certified organic. We're the first certified organic school farm in the country. And we grow food for the salad bars. And it's picked same day. Kids are eating, like, you know organic lettuce and carrots and peas and they're actually participating in growing it and meeting the young farmers that are doing it so you know even just on a grassroots level that can happen yeah well it's interesting too that you mentioned the uh, school lunch programs because that's another program that's on the chopping block in order to get more money to pay for the wall and um, one of the things that's interesting about that is that there's been studies that have shown that for some children, that is the only healthy meal that they get on a daily basis. And I, I'm old enough to remember when we were, as a nation, doing the war on poverty, quote unquote, that, that that's where the school lunch programs came from because the studies showed that very same thing. So it hasn't really changed at all. But yet we, we don't learn from our own history in terms of the efforts that we've made as well. But, but you know, 
I'm, I'm also that old. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> there's, there's actually a project here in Oceanside as well that's really exciting where the Oceanside um, Unified School District um, kind of saw what was happening in Encinitas and they have this oh, a 14 acre site that happens to be nested between two very challenged communities with really high rates of obesity, diabetes. And when you look at the neighborhood, right there is the 7-Eleven and a liquor store and there's, there's no good food. It's, it's, it's the food poison, you know. And so, you know, we're looking at as a, with Vista Community Clinic and, and Interfaith Community Service and the school district and the community and um, coming together to say, how can we grow food, teach kids, create jobs and feed, get good food into this community on a piece of school property that it's otherwise pretty much abandoned and, and used to. So, you know, there's, there, are ho- there are hopeful, I think, uh, opportunities even right here in our backyard. Well, that's what I was going to ask you, because you are doing something that's pretty great. And I also have heard about what's happening here in Oceanside. And how would you talk to other communities to say, hey, you know, you, you can do this, too? You know? Well, that's and that, you know, we're helping in whatever way we can um, share some of the learnings that we're having. And we actually work with projects all over the country. So there's an interesting movement. Um, agriculture is the new golf. Um, you know, we're not building neighborhoods around golf courses anymore. In fact, many of the golf courses are trying to be reimagined into farms. Um, and so, you know, throughout the country, we've been working with um, mostly master plan developers building communities and preserving substantial amounts of land for agriculture, a community farming that ties to a school, ties to an assisted living and senior living facility, you know, feeds that community, localizes that food system and brings people together around food to teach and learn and share. And, and so we're seeing this trend taking off right now. Um, the Urban Land Institute, ULI, has, done a, has got a big initiative, uh, food and real estate initiative, because this trend is growing so fast. Well, there's, there's one in Davis, the cannery in Davis, and it's this partnership and it's this master plan community around a farm. Um, a really high-end example would be Serenby outside of Atlanta. Which, which I actually is, started the farm there 15 years ago yeah, and lived that's there. A, that's a yeah, that's you know, and that was one of the... And one of the big issues is, you know, again, is um, those farms tend to be in the higher-end communities. Right. And so what we're working on and, and what we're trying to do at Coastal Roots and um, in our neighborhood is really um, innovate, experiment, try to learn what are these best practices. A lot of it's about building strategic partnerships. Um, a lot of it's about figuring out these challenging issues of how do you pay farmers a living wage and be able to make these farms viable. Um, these are not easy questions to answer at all, um, and it takes a lot. It takes a whole community to figure this out. Um, and so, you know, we're I think we're at the at an interesting um, point. Unfortunately, um, you know, one side we could look at the 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 vacuum of funding and the the reverse the pullback that is happening as a really it is a really it needs to call us to action. Um, you know, I use this analogy. I was just sharing. Rose, like, you know, a seed needs darkness to germinate, right? So, like, there's this darkness coming around this, this uh, that somehow is potentizing, I think, and bringing people to action. And I think, it, you know, some, it's an opportunity to sprout. And, and, and what I told him is I thought that um, that, that darkness was, yes, it's going to germinate a new progressive era. Um, I wanted to go back to sort of your knowledge of history for a second because so there was a period of time when you know every garden had a had a farm or had a, every garden someone grew produce in their backyard or whatever space they had and then we you know it's particularly in the post World War II era we moved to more sort of larger scale larger farms you know uh, consolidation and transportation and refrigeration and advertisements and it 
was there to respond to a need at that time, but then it's grown into something else. So given that historical perspective, are we just going back to the past or we do, do we need a new solution? Okay, I, I, it, we never, everyone didn't know how to garden. I mean, we've always had these, you know, for a couple hundred years, we've had some large urban centers where there have been people who, whose grandparents weren't farmers, you know, who haven't farmed. Um, you know, the post-World War II era is really interesting because, you know, there are a number of factors that sort of drove, um, hardened that impul- impulse towards lar- larger-scale agriculture. One of them was actually a result of a World War One um, trip involving Dwight Eisenhower, who uh, was tasked with heading a convoy across the United States to test road readiness and was appalled. And one of the things he signed into law was, you know, a national highway act. So while the Russians are tossing up Sputnik, we're building highways. And that helped consolidate it. A lot of the things about the nature of World War I and World War II and the way that they massed people and moved population around the United States also sort of created um, a, 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 contributed to the creation of a processed food culture. A lot of those technologies actually came out of war. Um, and also the suburbs, the defense industry. Um, and also, it's really interesting, you know, um, my parents, we always had a vegetable garden, um, and my grandparents were huge gardeners and, you know, came from farming families. But sort of in the 60s and the late 50s, my dad moved our garden into the backyard because the front yard was ornamental to compete with the neighbors, right? And the, but, but, the, but the sort of suburb, an ex- extension, and then the consolidation of food production, but traveling food mile. And the Leopold Institute did a really seminal study about food mile that I would encourage people to... To, to dig up. When was that done? A long time ago. Under Fred's leadership. Under Fred's uh, yeah. leadership, yeah. yeah. Is it 1,400 miles or something like that? Yeah, well, I, I think, you know, I think that we're going back in, in some ways to living in um, community more. I think people also have gotten so in their phones and in their cars and they need, they need social uh, interaction. People, you can't buy food on the internet. You can't have you can't have experiences on the internet. There's some of the few things left that I think people still can actually need to connect with other human people. Contact. Human contact. Um, and but at the same time, agriculture is going through a really interesting stage of innovation right now. I mean, ag tech and controlled environment agriculture and the way that food is the the the, the tech world has brought so much innovation to agriculture right now that it's an unprecedented uh, growth. Spurt, you know, in, in the way that farming's happening. So I think there's a, kind of these two polarities, actually. In some ways, there's this incredible science and innovation in agriculture. Um, and at the same time, there's this going back to the kind of grassroots, community, sustainability, you know. And I think we need both. I, I really do. I think we need, we need both in order to feed, you know, 9 billion but, people. But like, Amazon is piloting Amazon Fresh. So, so there would be some people in some neighborhoods that would never have to leave their homes, yeah. you know, theoretically, because they'd be able to have the, the fresh portion delivered. And that actually kind of scares me a little bit. It is. I tried it just out of yeah. curiosity. It was the amount of styrofoam was horrifying. Oh, my God. The there's, other, there's other places you can order online, like thrivemarket.com. They have a, a model where they're trying to bring... It's a lot of processed organic food. I mean, they're saying in shelf stable processed, or, you know, shelf stable organic food, but organic and non GMO food, and they're selling it for 25 to 50% off. And I, I mean, the funny thing is, 
people, you know, you can look at that and you're like, well, you're disconnected from your food. I'll just say that my parent, my mom, she goes three and a half hours one way to get organic food once a month. We used to, my ex-partner and I, we used to travel two hours one way. So the first two people that called me when we sent out this email encouraging people to go to thrivemarket.com are my mother and my sister. And I mean, within an hour, I'm getting a phone call. They're like, oh, this is so great. I can now get organic food. Yes. It's, there's no one size fits all. Yeah. I mean, I think I mean, that's it, the point, right? How it, it can be a part of a puzzle to fit in. Do you know what I mean? There's a lot of solutions. And it's not going to, not everyone's going to, I don't want everyone to order, again, order their food from online. I'm just saying it's an option for people. Well, and I think yeah. also, too, what Thrive Market is showing us yeah. is that this interest in the food system is not coastal. Yeah. It's not coastal elites. And if you if you talk to them about who's subscribing, they're getting tons of subscriptions yeah. from the Midwest. And in yeah. fact, they've located, they, they, they found a, a Rust Belt community in the Midwest to locate sure, their yeah. distribution center. It's a little bit and like so it's when, really or, interesting. when organic food became available at Walmart. And there was this struggle within the community. Is this a good thing or a bad thing? On the one hand, people were concerned that it would alter the standard and blah, 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 would reduce the quality. But on the other hand, organic food is becoming widely available and more affordable. So, you know, you, you, not, there's no perfect fix for this, but it takes all of these things, I think, together. So we've been on this side for a while. Dolores. Uh, I just wanted to, uh, talking about the school lunches, uh, unfortunately in many, many schools, the school lunches are terrible. And I know I, when we first started organizing in South Kern, which is an agricultural area, that was the first complaint that the parents had was about the quality of the food that was being served. And a lot of that is prepackaged and it's microwaved and they don't have people cooking the food the way that they used to when we were going to school. I mean, this is like a whole new thing that it's, you know, it's processed food and it's served to the kids. And so that has to be looked at. And I know that there's one of the chefs that did a whole documentary on this and he went around the country and, you know, making them pull out all the stuff that they were feeding these poor kids, uh, which is you know not 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 good for their health or you know for the nutrition or even for the study habits. Uh, the other thing about um, one of the things about the subsidies again, I'm going to go back to that. You know, we, part of the huge subsidies that they gave were to the dairy farmers. You know, and the dairy farmers in our area, they they really pollute the air. You know, Harris Ranch over there off of Highway 99. Uh, you know, they say you can actually see it. You know, from space. But I mean, the pollution from all of those cattle and the way that they're kept there is just horrible. It affects the air quality of the of the residents that live in South Kern County. All of these uh, terrible. And and the thing is, they they give the subsidies to keep the price of the milk high. And we also need to tell adults, you don't need milk. You're already grown, okay? <laughs> Stop eating milk. You know, I mean, you, you, you know, you can eat maybe take almond milk or some other kind of milk, but, but stop eating, you know, milk that comes from a cow. You don't need it anymore. You really, really don't. And that's another big area of that. Um, not only could our quality be improved, but our health be improved, but also save more money that could go to subsidize, uh, say, fresh produce. And then one other issue is uh, uh, food preservation. Uh, when we were kids, you know, we always canned the food, you know. You got the summer harvest and you canned the pears and you canned everything. You spinach, everything. You canned everything. And people had your pantry. And I think that art is lost. <laughs> Uh, people don't know how to preserve food, and you can do that through drying food or through, uh, you know, uh, canning it or freezing it. And I think that's another big area that uh, we could go into our communities and uh, so that food is not wasted. Because I, I heard something, and I try not to waste food when I, after I heard this, but they say that a third of the methane, you know, that is affecting our air quality uh, here in the United States comes from the food that we waste, you know. 
And I think that that's uh, something that we don't think about because we have so much food that we waste it and we don't you know, think about how, we, how, how much food that we throw away. And I think that's something that we have to start uh, implementing that consciousness, especially in our children. You know, I, I, want, I, I think you're absolutely right about that. I think also when it comes to affordability, right, if you buy what's in season when it's high and in peak season, it's very affordable. And if you know how to preserve it and can it or any, whichever way you choose, then that lets you have that throughout the year and not have to pay the higher off-season prices. And the first part that you raised about dairy cattle, and I was thinking that this is a way in which technology is helping us. There's some scientists in Berkeley who are studying, for example, dairy cattle and how to minimize the amount sort of uh, of gas release into the atmosphere and so to make it carbon neutral or even carbon negative you know this one of the beautiful things is that that good farming as we like to say which is not loaded with pesticides or chemical based fertilizer but sort of actual farming may also hold the answer to climate change because it can sequester a lot more atmospheric carbon it's time to wrap it up if anyone has any closing remarks that they'd like to let the audience know and before we end uh, one more yes I'm just going to say this uh, in, in terms of the dark period that we think we're going through I think we're definitely going to overcome it but I was on a march the other day and this young woman had a sign and I want to share the words on that sign that she had and I asked her who, 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 who was she quoting this from she said I wrote it but this is what she said she said they can cut all the flowers but you can't hold back the spring you can cut all the flowers but you can't hold back the spring so we are the spring and we are out there and we're sowing the seeds of justice, right? And of food justice. And those flowers will grow and spring will come. And that is a wrap, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.